about to enter the Double Dragon Podcast with Shane Greenwood, owner of Double Dragon Gym in the Sutherland Shire, Trent Lawrence, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, and active pro Muay Thai fighter, Hugh O'Donnell. Are you ready? Fight! Fight! Welcome back to End of the Double Dragon Podcast. It's your boy Shane Greenwood here in Double Dragon Gym in the Southern Shire. And with me, I have Trenton Lawrence. Hello. Hugh O'Donnell. Hey. How are we today, fellas? Good. Better oh. than last week. We yeah. are. <laughs> hey, inside training update. It's good times. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Remember, guys. So, we're open now. So, feel free to filter back in. Restart your memberships. Yeah. All the good stuff. <laughs> It'd be cool, though. Like, we had a lot of faces back. Like, I was pretty impressed with the first night back. Um, like, the fighters are still filtering back in. They're fucking lazy. But, like, <laughs> the, the um, general classes, like, the beginner, intermediate levels, like, the place was packed for the first night awesome, back. man. Yeah, I was yeah. really happy to see everyone. All right. So, once again, another special episode. We have a guest here. So, let me just do the run list for that one. We've got to have a look, expand my screen so I can read it. So we have a WKBF Queensland champion, ISKA Queensland champion, WMC Queensland champion, WKBF um, Australian champion, two times WKBF South Pacific champion, four times Cage Muay Thai champion, Siam Pro International champion, Limpidi Stadium, uh, K of the Night, um, say the Thai name stadium because I can't remember it now. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Local Thai expert there. <laughs> and Australian Muay Thai Awards K of the Year. It's Mr. Elliot the Dragon Compton. How are you today, sir? Good, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Oh, man, it's great to have you on from that one. It's like, yeah, like, you know, it's funny just that one day I just go, um, no, I'm just like this page. Like, Mr. Elliot, I like Elliot's fights. And then just get DM straight away, just go, hey, thank you for the follow. go, well, we're opening the conversation. Let's hey. <laughs> like, do you want yeah, to for one? sure, man. No, it's cool. I saw you guys doing the podcast, and I was like, man, this is... It's cool to see people trying to rebuild the sport of Thai boxing in this country, man. It kind of died off for a bit, so like it's cool to see things picking up, man. It's, it's cool. It's, a, it's an exciting new era that's like you know, Australia's going through. Absolutely, man. It's like a resurgence, mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, I think we're going to take over again soon, man. Oh, definitely, mate. Yeah. So yeah. let's just go quickly. Every time that we get someone new on, like the first question we ask is like, you know, what was your first martial arts experience, and like, you know, what drove you getting to get into martial arts? Yeah, for sure, man. So I first started training martial arts when I was four years old. My old man's my coach, right? So I grew up seeing him go to the gym like every night. And obviously, like we'd go to the gym too. And I'd always be watching. And um, I used to sit and watch Bruce Lee films with him as a kid. And I was just obsessed, man. And like I begged them and begged them and begged them to take me to the gym. So I started when I was four. I did my first class. But uh, I was probably still a little, a little bit too young at four years old to be part of the class with the bigger kids. So my old man just trained me from home for a year. And then uh, when I was five, I joined the kids' class again. And I kind of came in as the new kid, but I'd already been training for a year. So I kind of like took over, you know, kind of came in with like a lot more knowledge than what the other kids had. And uh, that's pretty much just where it's been for me, man. I've just been obsessed with it from almost the day I could walk, you know, like. You know, some, it sounds corny and everybody says this, but for me, it's like, this is what I was born to do. It's like, I don't know anything else, man. It's like, it, it like you cut me in the middle and it'd be martial arts on my insides. You know what I mean? So um, yeah. that's how I got into it, my old man. And then the rest is history, man. Here we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So when you started out, I got like uh, two things to expand on there because we got to um, give him a bit of shine because your old man's a bit of a legend. Um, yeah. Give us a, a little bit of his kind of um, a, a little run through of kind of his martial arts career and, and what brought him to being a trainer. Yeah, for sure. It's cool that you say that, man. Because I mean, I think a lot of coaches don't get the credit that they deserve, but he's a very humble, quiet man. He will never like sell himself and tell everyone who he is and actually what he's achieved in his life. So he never really gets like the full shout out that he deserves. So basically, man, he started training in martial arts when he was 15, maybe a little bit younger, but somewhere around 15. He started in different arts like uh, Kempo and things like that. He eventually ended up training, this is back in the UK where I was born, with a, a guy called uh, a Mark. And the system was a style of Kung Fu called uh, G-Pai. And uh, it was kind of like similar to a Jeet Kune Do concept where it was like a, a blend of all styles. And um, and he lived for it, bro. It was like everything that he, he, he did, you know, like this is before my sister and I were born. And um, yeah, like he would train every single night and he's got some like, crazy war stories back in the day and it was like the full old school hardwood floors freezing cold gym in the uk no gloves no shin pads sparring to the death you know like yeah like the, the real traditional uh kung fu that you you hear about so then uh as things progressed uh, he, he reached pretty much like the highest level that you can get to in in, in the gpi and uh you know the time came that him and my mom wanted to come to Australia to give me and my sister a better lifestyle, you know, like where we're from in the UK is not particularly a nice area. There's not a lot of opportunity or prospects. So, um, I mean, it's not a terrible place, but it, it, like, it, it's not where we live now, you know? So we moved out to Australia and he just did his research and kept looking around. We first moved to Adelaide and he came across a, a gym in Adelaide, uh, Nino Pillars International Academy of Martial Arts. So he, he went down and, uh, had a try and and he just fell in love with the way that uh nino taught and everything else and then from there he that's where he really like expanded his knowledge so he went from like having a good solid like gpi background which still encompassed like a lot of like the taekwondo style techniques and a lot of the traditional kung fu and i mean it's a real blend so then he then started training in the the silat which is like an indonesian and malaysian martial art filipino martial arts he was uh, training shoot, shoot boxing, shoot wrestling with Eric Paulson back in the early 90s. Uh, it, obviously, he's an instructor in the Jeet Kune Do uh, under Goro Dan and Asanto. I don't know if you know who that is, but that's Bruce Lee's right-hand man. Yeah. So over, over like the course of like 20 years, I guess, at the, at the time that, uh, yeah, thereabouts, he kind of developed all these things that uh, kind of led us now into the MMA world. Like essentially like before MMA was a thing, that's what he was doing, you know, like, and I always remember as kids, we would travel, like, so he could go and train and learn, like, I remember being in the States, training with Guru Dan and Asanto and uh, Jean-Jacques Machado back in, like, the, the mid-90s, and uh, obviously Guru Dan and Asanto, Francis Fong, like, all these these guys that are, like, legends, you know what I mean, like, and uh, he trained under them, and he's an instructor under most of them, too, and... Uh, mm. From there, we just kind of then ventured off in a, in a different direction. You know, um, we ended up going to Thailand just for a training trip, and um, we kind of just were there. And my trainer said, "Hey, you want to have a fight?" And I had a fight, and that was that was that. But because because of that time of going to Thailand, he kind of took a different direction in, in his in his passion and became a lot more passionate about Thai boxing, but still kept up with everything else. Like, I mean, I, I know I'm blowing smoke up his ass because he's my old man, but. This guy does not stop, bro. You, you have no idea, man. Like, I can't even... If you've seen him in the gym or you've been around him, you'll understand, man. Like, it's... Uh, 
people refer to him as an encyclopedia of martial arts because the, the depth of knowledge that he has. But I don't think that even does it justice, man. You know, it's like, it's the, it's the craziest thing. So from there, then he started training in all different kinds of, uh, he's a black, uh, second degree black belt in jiu-jitsu now. He's a second degree uh, grandmaster in Filipino martial arts. He's been in like training trips all through the Philippines, fighting random guys on the street, uh, on the beach with sticks and no armor and like, like sparring with like live blades and, and like, like, I think that someone should write to the Oxford Dictionary and say you need to change the definition of martial artist and just put a picture of that guy in, man. Like, because he, to me, I mean, obviously he's my old man and I'm biased a little bit, but he is the epitome of martial arts. So I think because of that, that's kind of, it's just filtered through to me naturally, you know, so. Yeah, I think like, uh, like I think it's important uh, if, if we're speaking to you and about your career, like to, to take that time to like, like you say you're, you're biased because you're old man, but like everything you said is true. Like I, I have a lot of respect for um, Steve as a martial artist. So it's like, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and also kind of like a pioneer um, in this kind of bringing that knowledge from around the world and kind of setting his feet here. And, and of course you're now fighting um, in one championship, which is one of the biggest martial arts stages in the world. So you can follow that trajectory from all these different pieces. It's like, he's just really trying to, read that story of like finding martial arts from all these places and you can see it in very much a modern format um, with yourself. So just to follow that timeline uh, with uh, kind of you as, as such a young kid starting martial arts, I know you have quite a spread of sort of traditional martial arts and you were very early going. So what was the style or the styles that you started out with as a young kid? Yeah, I guess it was kind of like... A blend. So uh, I'll coach in Adelaide, uh, Nino Pillar. He was, uh, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure he was a fifth degree Taekwondo and Hapkido black belt. But he was also the highest ranked instructor under Guru Dan and Asanto outside of the US. And I'm pretty sure, again, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure he was the second highest ranked next to Joel, who was Guru Dan's assistant, right? So he basically just put this syllabus together that encompassed everything, right? So for us in the kids' class, we would do, uh, like, we learned how to punch, how to kick, how to knee, how to elbow. So it would be a blend of the Thai boxing, Taekwondo, and multiple different striking arts. We'd also do a lot of the Filipino weaponry stuff as kids, like stick work, and never any contact as kids, obviously, but we'd learn all the different numbering systems and flow drills and things like that. We, there was a big uh, grappling influence as well. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but it was like a blend of different grappling arts that he'd learned over the time of training with Eric Paulson and guys like this, uh, Yuri Nakamura and people like like that. So like, it pretty much just became a, a blend of everything. But the, the biggest thing that was really kind of drilled into us as kids when we we're training, like not just with, like, with, with our first instructor, but like particularly with my dad because he was so passionate about it, was the, the Jeet Kune Do concepts. You know, like Jeet Kune Do isn't necessarily a, a style. It's a concept. It's a thought process and a, a way that you can, like, uh, it's not just for, for training, you know what I mean? It's for, for your life and you can adapt the, 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 I don't want to say rules, rules is the wrong word, but the principles and the fundamentals to everything in life. So I think that was the, the biggest thing that, that, that I was taught and that really filtered through into all of our training and it still does to this day, man, like, like I said, I remember traveling the world as kids and like my old man would just traveled like 
to go and train. Like, I remember being in the UK, he was training with Rick Young and Krishna Godhania and all these guys. And at the time, it just seemed like it was normal for me. Like, I just, like, I just thought that's what everybody did, you know? And then as I got older, I was like, man, like, I fully understand his commitment. And it's like just a thing that's trickled through to me now. Like, every time we go away, I go and I train and I find whoever's in that area to learn from. And then because of that, that's kind of, and because of the, like, going back to your, your question, I'm getting off track, but because of the, the what I had at the start in terms of the, the syllabus that we were taught and then it was like a blend of so many different styles, it's just carried through for the rest of my, my life and into my career, you know. Like I fight Thai boxing, but if you see me fight, I'm not a traditional Thai stylist, but at the same time I can play Thai, thai style, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, yeah. I guess so, um, just to kind of expand on the point that you made, would you say that that kind of... Um, uh, Jeet Kune Do principle is kind of uh, the idea that moved away from so probably in the past like maybe the 80s and before a martial art was a set of moves this is the way that we do it right this is our it was, it was very it was very textbook like it was a syllabus like this is the moves you need to learn to move to this belt do you think it was that Jeet Kune Do that kind of started to introduce that idea of like it's not about these are the moves it's about what problem do you have to solve and and how are you going to approach that? Is does that kind of sound like? Yeah, absolutely, man. I think you're right on the money there. I think for a long time, martial arts was, this is what we do. And then another martial arts says, well, this is what we do to counter that. Because if you look at the history of martial arts and how it came about, it's combat, right? Yeah. I mean, you can dress it up on however you want in modern day times. But the way the martial arts came around, when you look back at the, the samurais and things like that, it was like, this is how people protected their family, protected their villages, protected everything, right? So... Like, if you, if you take that and they say, well, this village does this, and they, they, they like to use punches to, to, to hurt people, well, let's use our legs, you know? Like, yeah. we're like a taller breed of people, maybe, so let's use our legs to keep them away. So it became like, this counters that, and this counters this, and this counters that. But I think with the introduction of, of Bruce Lee and the Jeet Kune Do, I'm not, I'm not saying that he was definitely the guy that changed martial arts forever or anything like that. I mean, some would argue that he did, but... He definitely, with, with the Jeet Kune Do principles, it was like, like you absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, right? And it's like, and you take from any place you can find it, you know, and then you add what is what is your own as well. So, I think with that, when you look at like the the way that Bruce used to train and the things that he used to do, I mean, he could box, he could kickbox, he could use the Wing Chun style of trapping and and grappling and locking and things like that. But he just had this unique ability to be able to blend everything that he had learned and he had done over the years into like a, a format. I don't even know what you're like. This, this is the thing about the Jeet Kune Do. It's so hard to like mm-hmm. to, to grasp exactly what it is, but it's a philosophy and it's a thought process more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So I think because of that, like, I mean, that was in the 60s, right? So then it's only natural and with the amount of fame that he, he had, it's only natural that people would like take note of that. You know what I mean? Like you say like, about people being pioneers and things like that. Like, he was the pioneer of MMA. He was the pioneer of, like, blending things together, you know what I mean? And that's how I think, personally, like, we ended up where we are now with, like, a sport and a, a lifestyle of martial arts that is just so eclectic, you know? Yeah, and, and you think kind of like like that kind of um, prevailing idea in that area was more so, like, like, I think the shift in thinking was kind of like, rather than, I have my moves and you have your moves. And if we go at it, who wins? It's like, could I take some of what I know and some of what you know and kind of put it together a little bit for the situation? Like that's kind of like that, that changing kind of like 
more flexible ideas to like, it, it's not like religions. It's, it's not like this is my way and that's your way. It's like, let's meet in the middle and, and, and figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that the biggest thing when you look at it from a combat point of view is kind of like, uh, why, like, why would you want to go in and, and box a boxer? If you know that he's a good boxer, if you're looking at it, not from necessarily a sport point of view, but from like you said, combat and life, whatever else, the idea is to, to take someone where they're uncomfortable, right? So if you know that this guy likes to favor his hands because he's spent the last 20 years boxing, then he was really kind of like one of the first people to be like, well, you know what? Well, I'm going to, to be able to defend that, I need to know how to do it, you know? So I will learn a bit of boxing and then I'll use what I've learned in the boxing and I'll apply it to the Western style of kickboxing, the savat, the French kickboxing. There's a huge influence on that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that like that I feel that really kind of blew my, well, not blew my mind, but the thing that's so different that a lot of people don't think about is fencing, right? You know, the sport fencing. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the footwork uh, in the, in the Junfa Jeet Kune Do concepts is based off the fencing footwork. It's like a, what you call a pendulum, right? So even like that in itself. So he's gone from like watching Olympic fencing when he was at college to going, well, that's the quickest way to cover distance and nobody else does it. So let's apply that to what we're doing. And then all of a sudden now you're, you're hanging with some of like the, the fastest guys in the world. You're hanging outside of range and you're beating them to the punch, you know, like Goro Dan used to tell us stories that Bruce would spar with a boxer and he would go to jab and he would see the jab and he would kick them with his lead leg in the head before they land their jab. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's some serious speed that he's developed from like, different styles of martial arts that he's put together and I don't know man like I get super passionate about it because it just blows my mind like it's yeah yeah that's, um, that's a, a very like uh, open-minded kind of take to martial arts which does bring back to because I wanted to get into this with you because you're a very interesting stylist to me um, I always liked watching you fight and, and also kind thanks, of man. knowing about <laughs> knowing about kind of your origins and um, coming from that that very diverse background I'm always interested. Is this like, like you, you mentioned as well? Like you, you did a lot of styles, like um, including some ground fighting and stuff. So, so what kind of was it? Just like a trip to Thailand that really made you go towards Thai boxing over another combat sport, or, or what brought you to Muay Thai specifically? Yeah, that's a good question, man. And and not many people know this, right? So, the thing for me is, I, I never actually set out to be a fighter. I, it was never. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, I love to fight and. Uh, I grew up always in trouble and fighting at school and in the street and whatever. But, but like, I got to a point where I was like, I just wanted to learn and I wanted to teach, right? So my father and I would plan on going on this uh, instructor program overseas and we we're going to do that. And, you know, a few things happened, which I won't get into, but we decided, you know what, let's just let's go to Thailand instead. You know what I mean? It's going to be a better option. You know, we'll have a good holiday together. I was only young and it will be a cool thing to do. So then I was there and I was training and, to be honest, man, I just fell in love with the Thai culture. I mean, obviously, I had experience. I've been to Thailand before. I'd never fully trained in Thailand, but I went there as a kid and whatever else. But I'd never really been fully immersed in it. And um, my initial plan was I wanted to fight MMA because, I, I, like I said, I've, I've been doing shoot boxing and shoot wrestling and all these things since I was a kid. I started jiu-jitsu in primary school. And like, that was my original goal was I wanted to fight MMA. But I don't know, man. Something just got me about Thai boxing. So... I had this fight in Thailand and I got fully stitched up. I got set up like so bad. Um, and I like I fought reasonably well, but I got my ass handed to me, man. I fought this guy with over 250 plus fights who was a stadium champ. 
and I had no idea, man. There was like he was like three uh, weight divisions above me, and <laughs> it was a it was a it was a classic tie stitch up, man. And my my tie trainer at the time had told um, the everyone like him and the promoter like collaborated and like told everyone that I was like this superstar from Australia and I had over a hundred fights and so they put money on me to lose but the crowd put money on me to win ah, nice. yeah so then you know what I mean they only get my ass kicked they made a load of money so but all that aside man like I just loved it I, I loved the, the 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 atmosphere in the Thai stadium I fought at the the original Bangla stadium which is shut down now you know and you, you hear a lot of stories about like uh, a lot of Australians getting set up the other way where they get set up to win and I'm like yeah. man why didn't I get a fight like that <laughs> like but I'm, I'm so grateful that I didn't, and I'm so grateful that, like, the original Bangla Stadium, if you ever went there, this is, this is going back 12, nearly 13 years ago, was, like, probably one of the most intimidating stadiums I'd ever been in. It was, like, it was almost like a pit, you know? Like, the ring was on the ground level, and there was, like, these, like, seatings that went straight up, and the people were, like, overlooking the, yeah. the ring, and it was, like, old, and it was grungy, and it was, like, a real, like, like what you see in kickboxing, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was kind of like, oh, this is different. This is intimidating, but that's cool. But there was just something about it, man, that I just loved it. And I kind of had like a bit of a sour taste in my mouth that I got stitched up. And I was like, you know what? I want to do it again. I want to go and I want to just have like a fair fight this time and, and see how it goes. So we came back home and we trained and we went back probably, I think it was like three or four months later or whatever. And I got matched up and I had another great fight. Uh, this one was it was an even match, you know. It was like it was like toe to toe for a good five rounds, which is pretty rare for the tires. Like they like to be lazy for the first two or three for the gambling. But this kid was like he came at me right from the opening bell, and we had a really good fight. And now uh, I remember the fifth round. Um, he won the fourth round, and then the fifth, I was coming back and I hit him with a massive right hand, and his knees buckled, and the bell went. I remember thinking, man, that round went so quickly. And uh, anyway, so. Afterwards, I said to the promoter, I was like, oh, you know, thanks for having me. Because that's okay. I think you would have won the fight, but he won round four, and that was the money round, and there was a lot of betting, and he won. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I had no idea that, that was even a thing, you know? Yeah. So, um, which is cool. Like, whatever, man. Like, like I was gutted at the time, but looking back, it's like, it's all part of the journey, you know what I mean? Um, and then from there, because of like the second camp that I did, I had a really good tight trainer that like really took me under his wing. and what I really liked about it was he respected my old man as well as my coach and would ask him for advice and like they really worked together and we kind of had this like little like Thai family going on you know and uh, yeah I think that was just it for me man I just loved it and then I still eventually thought that maybe one day I would fight MMA but I just wanted to just see how far I could go Thai boxing and uh, yeah man and kind of that was it you know I just fell in love with fighting I came back and I fought a month later um on Ian Jacobs' show in Mackay and won. And then that was it, man. I just was on a, uh, on a steam train and I just kept kept fighting and, you know, a couple like a couple of losses here and there, but I just kept winning and, like, taking, the, like, the, the hardest fights that I could get, you know. Um, like, a lot yeah. of people, like, gave me a lot of shit online, to be honest, about some of the fights that I would take, you know. Like, I remember fighting Campan on Evolution and I'd had like 17 fights and he'd had 67 KOs in the first round and he'd had some like crazy like record with like ridiculous, you know, and I, I copped a lot of shit for it. But I, I fought and I lost, man, but I, like I had a, 
I had a ball and I showed people what I had and I challenged myself. And I think that's why I decided to stick with the Thai boxing because the, the, the community and the culture at the time was different. You know, it was like, you, like I said, I copped a lot of shit online, but it was only from a few bad seeds where it's like the majority of, of the Thai boxing community was like, man, this is cool. Like, good on you, man. Like, and they kind of encouraged it. You know, you lose and people like pat on the back and say, man, that's awesome. Whereas, I think at the time, the MMA community was a little bit like, if you lost, it was like, well, you should think about retiring. And I was like, what? No, nah, man, I just, you know what I mean? Like, man, United doesn't win every single game they play. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to, like, find my way. I'm trying to challenge myself. And I, I think that was the thing. There was no one was protecting records. And you were kind of like, people acknowledged when you were trying to step up and make, not necessarily make a name for yourself, but just try and, like, make a cool journey for you to look back on and, and then here we are, man. But yeah, yeah. You make like you. I think um, you're on the money there with your take, and it, it does remind me. Like I, I was having a conversation with one of our um, younger guys who's sort of just starting out fighting on that topic about records and stuff. This person's record is that, and then what we started to get to that, like I was trying to say to him is like, when you're finished fighting, who's going to remember what your record was, right? You know, no like no one's going to remember that you were. 15 and 0 that you were 20 and 0 or whatever you want like when you fought all those bums as yeah, well, right? like, <laughs> yeah yeah people will you're, remember, you're like, gonna put it on your gravestone yeah oh, exactly right like, yeah. but people will remember if you were the guy that was always there that was always there like with his hand up and and that's what like what would you rather be remember like would you rather be someone you know that maybe one or two people your mum remembers that you were 18 and yeah. 0 or would you rather be someone that would someone bring, when you're done fighting done training you're not like around the sport anymore or whatever would you rather be someone that people bring up and go he always jumped at the chance to to fight the top guys I'd rather be the latter I'm sure there's plenty of people that would rather be absolutely you know? man I'd, ha- I'd rather have a losing record but know that I fought top people than have an undefeated record knowing that eh, I kind of got a lot of gifts you know yeah um, I remember when I was coming up, there was another guy in the same division as me, and uh, he got to something like twenty-one and O, something like that. And uh, there's a lot of like comparisons between us because he was undefeated and I was doing well, but I'd had a couple of setbacks here and there. And people were like, "Oh yeah, no, like Elliot's good, but he's not that good," you know. And I was like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> but the first time that guy stood up, I stepped up, and he got beat. And he didn't just get beat; he got bitched. You know, like, and it was purely because, like, and man, I'm not, I'm not denying the, the guy's talent. He was a, he had a lot of, a lot of skill and a lot of talent, but he didn't have the experience. And when he stepped up and he fought someone that was a professional, that was experienced and had had hard fights, whose record might not have looked that great on paper, but he'd fought pretty much everyone who's anyone. This kid just could not live, and he got stopped in the second round. I think it was like bad you know and uh i always remember thinking like that's the thing you know and i i see it a lot like these days with guys trying to get into the ufc you know i was training in thailand one one time years and years ago and uh my thai trainer nung at the time who was like he, he was my really like my main thai trainer i was with him for a long time he said to this guy hey you want to you want to fight i was fighting at uh Tepersit stadium and uh he said you want to fight he says uh not really and i was like what? Like, <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you here for, you know? And he goes, because he was living in Thailand, you know, he was an American guy. He says, 
uh, you know, I just don't want any. I don't want to risk any losses on my record because I need to get to six and O to be looked at for the UFC. Right. So I was like, "Yeah, right, okay, cool." And then, uh, like, I spoke to my Thai trainer about it, and he said, "Yeah, his last fight, he fought someone that wasn't very good, and he only just won." So I was like, "Okay," but then his record was like at the time across Thai boxing and MMA, he was like five and O or something like that. And I was like. Man, imagine like and he was a lightweight. Imagine like you sign to the UFC at six and zero, and you step in and like your first fight, someone like Clay Guida or someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you're gonna go, oh, should have taken that fight. You know what I mean? I wish I knew what to do here. You know, it's like it's a dangerous game to play, man. And for me, it's just I don't know. I don't think about a record, man. I think about legacy. That's 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 what's important to me. And and the journey, look back and go, you know what, man? Like I had fun and I really enjoyed it. And, I took some fights that were really hard fights, and the crowd loved it. And my mum probably didn't, but that's fine, you know. Like <laughs> it, is, it is, you know. What, yeah. What's what's been your most memorable fights? Are there any that stand out? My most memorable fight would definitely be my fight at Lumpini Stadium. It was like, uh, I, I'd always said from like when I was young, I used to tell my old man, "I'm going to be a world champion one day. I'm going to be a world champion," and uh, so I'm going to fight at Lumpini Stadium and I'm going to win. So. I was uh, fighting out of Fairtex at the time and uh, the opportunity came up and it was like obviously one shot, you know. And I knew if I said no, then I wasn't going to get it. Not that I ever would say no. I've never said no to a fight. But it was like, man, let's, let, this is it. Let's go, you know. So uh, I flew to Thailand and I, I lived at Fairtex for a, a good while and I trained and I trained and I, and I got ready. And we originally agreed to fight at 70 kilos and, at the time, I was like 72 or 73, so it was going to be an easy cut. I was like, man, this is this is meant to be. This is perfect, you know? So anyway, they uh, they said to me, for probably about 10 days out, they said, oh, uh, the promoter said that you have to fight at 67 now, otherwise no fight. The fight's changed. And I've been training for ages, and I was like, man. And like, you know, like my wife had been healed. At the time, she was still my, my, my girlfriend. She'd, she'd been paying my bills for me, man, so I could like live out my dream, you know? Like, and she'd been hustling and... I've been away from my family and, you know, I was like, my, my sister was pregnant. And I was like risking missing all that. And I was like, man, I'm not like risking all this for nothing, you know, like this is, this is my dream. This is everything that I worked for. So I was like, yeah, cool. No worries. Like it's going to be a six kilo cut. It's not ideal, but it is what it is. Cause I never used to cut weight. I hated it. Right. So. Me too. And it, yeah. Right. <laughs> was, yeah. So anyway, I was like, all right, cool. No worries. Yeah, let's do it. And then I uh, rang the old man. I was like, this is what's happened. And he goes, oh, it's okay. You know, it's a doable cut. It's like 10%, just, just short, short of. It'd be, it'll be cool. No worries. So anyway, uh, he flew over like about a week before the fight. And we trained. And it was a, a, the fight was on the Saturday night. And it was a Tuesday morning. And I just finished training. And uh my trainer says to me, hey, can you just step on the scales? We want to check your weight. So I was like, yeah, cool, no worries. And uh, my scales, which I found out later, were broken from flying to Thailand. Yeah. So uh, I was like, yeah, cool, man. Like, stepped on the scales and they're all talking in Thai and I could speak a little bit and I heard them say 78. I was like, what? So I stood off and I was like, nah, that can't be right. So do it again. So they did it again. They're like, okay, no, no, me make mistake. Okay. 79 <laughs> and I was like no that can't be right but I like kept a straight face and I was like no no do it again let's go do it again so they did it like two or three times and each time it came out like 79 kilos and I was like oh shit 
So they look at me, they're like, oh, you know, we're going to have to cancel the fight. We're going to have to tell them like 76 or nothing. And I was like, no, it's cool, man. I do this every time. Like this is like I can't wait like this every time I fight. It's cool. I promise you I'll make it. No problems. So they're like, oh, okay. Like looking at me like, is this kid crazy? So anyway, like me and the old man like picked up my training bag, casually walked back to the room, shut the door like, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, this is, like this is some serious shit. So anyway, three days, we, we cut the weight. We lost 12 kilos. It was like definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done. Yeah. Um, looking back, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done too. Um, nearly died, but that's cool. It's all good. I uh, So anyway, the, like the thing with the Lumpini was the, the weigh-in was on the same day as the fight. Yeah. So I didn't even get much time to rehydrate. So made weight, came dead on. Like I was, I was dying, man. I was, I was, I was really hurting. And, uh, Made weight. They chucked me back in the, in the van. We went back to the camp. And just by chance, there was a, a doctor training there. And he was looking at me and he was like, no, nah, you're not good, man. So he demanded that the camp took me to a hospital. So they took me to the hospital and they uh, took me in and they rehydrated me and they kept me there all day. And uh, literally, they, they released me with enough time that I could uh, go and get something to eat and went straight to the stadium. So I didn't even go back to the camp. My old man went and packed up a bag and got everything ready. So we went from the hospital to the restaurant to the, to the stadium. And uh, I felt pretty good, to be fair, like all things considered. And uh, I warmed up and, you know, like all the ties were coming up to me and they were like grabbing my arms and feeling me and like laughing. And you know, they're all like pointing at me from across the stadium and there's like 10,000 screaming ties at Lumpini Stadium. This is the original Lumpini Stadium that. too. And uh, like the atmosphere was like just crazy, man. And, my mum had flown over to, to watch and I remember like sitting cage side, sorry, ringside and uh, thinking, man, this is legit. This is like, this is it. This is the moment I'm going to fight at Lumpini Stadium. And uh, my trainer the whole time had been saying, oh, this kid, you know, he's I'm going to fight. He's really, really good, but it's like a 50-50 matchup. This is really good. He's been fighting at Lumpini for a little while, but, you know, and it was the main show of the week on like Thai TV. It was huge, right? So anyway, stepped in the ring. And uh, my Thai trainer says to my dad, oh, Papa, I make a mistake. This, is a, this guy's a different guy. This guy's really, really good. And, uh, of course, I didn't know this until after the fight. So, anyway, we fought and I ended up knocking him out in the third round with a spin elbow. He hit me with a huge elbow. You've probably seen it. I share it, like, every second week. And then uh, <laughs> I just I got caught, like, I wrong-footed myself and I spun and I just caught him clean on the chin, knocked him out. I, I, I was winning the, the, the fight anyway, but it was cool to get that win and, like just the the atmosphere of the crowd, like going from being like the Farang that was like probably they didn't want they didn't want me to be there, you know. They wanted the Thai guys, they you know, like I was the only Farang on the show, and uh, the crowd went crazy, man. They're up on their feet, and the judges were like all clapping and cheering, and I could see my mum in the crowd, and I remember just taking the moment to like stop and just look, look back at my old man, like, am I dreaming? Like this is unreal. And then uh, so anyway. We got off stage and we went and did a, a, t- a TV interview and that was cool. And I sat backstage and I was taking my wraps off, like still just trying to like soak up the energy, you know. And uh, a guy in a in the uniform comes over and he says to me, uh, "Can you come see us in the in the office with your passport, please? Because uh, you've won knockout of the night bonus." And I was like, "Whoa, man! This is like this is the shit that I hear John Wayne talk about. You know what I mean? Like this is that that's me all of a sudden. You know, I'm living that life." So for me, like, it was just such a cool thing. And, um, like, they, they, they gave me the thing 
was is I had to sign a document to get my, my knockout bonus. Then I had to go back the next day to collect it and then I'd fly home. And, uh, and I don't know if that was when I was supposed to get my gold chain or not, but it's cool. So uh, <laughs> I was flying out the next day. Um, so this thing, when you win by uh, knockout at the Phoenix Stadium, you're supposed to get a gold chain. Yeah. Wayne got one and everybody else got one, but I didn't. But, so anyway, I just said to the to the Thai Army guys, because Little Penny was run by the Thai Army, I said to him, look, just give everything to my trainer and he can just have it. And I said to him, I, like, to me, it wasn't a lot of money. It was like 800 bucks or something, maybe, yeah. something like that. But for him, like, that's going to feed his family for ages, you yeah. know. And yeah. his dad was a Thai boxer of the century. His name was uh, Apidej Sit Harun. Mm. And he was very, very sick at the time. And he was my also my trainer. And uh, he wasn't going to make it. I knew he wasn't going to make it. So for me, it was like a... It was a cool moment to be able to like give back to the people that had given me so much, and I didn't care about anything else, man. I just won my, like the, the biggest thing in, in, in the world to me right then, you know. Like that was like that was like my FA Cup final at Wembley, yeah. you know. Like that was that was the thing. So that was definitely the most memorable fight, um, probably followed by like my one debut and then my first win with one, um, just obviously because of the the size of the event, you know, yeah. but. That Lumbini one, man, is like, I mean, I got it tattooed on my back. It meant that much to me, you know. Uh, it's cool. And to do it with my old man, too, man, that was just like icing on the cake, you know. Yeah, it must be kind of crazy to be in, like, you know, the real, what they call the Mecca Muay Thai, you know, overseas at, at Lumbini, but your family's there, too. Like, it's kind of like a cool mix. Yeah, man, for sure. It's, um, do you guys ever go to the original Lumbini? No, I think I was only about 16 when they closed. The old one. Yeah, I okay. Got to get yeah, right. Well, the. There's like the ring, right? And then there's like uh, a row of like uh, Farang around the outside, like tourists going by. And then there's big cages and then everything else is just tires. And they've all got like 50 mobile phones in these briefcases and they're taking bets and gambling and but their energy, man. It's just like, I mean, like when I fought at uh, Mall of Asia Arena, when I fought Cosmo, there's 21,000 people in that stadium and it was, didn't even come close to yeah. Lumpini, which I think was like 10 or 12,000, something like that. Yeah, man, it was like, but then like I could just see my mom, she's got like this big mop of like curly blonde hair and a sea of people and I could hear her, man. That's what blew my mind, right? So it was like, I'm like, like you said, I'm at the Mecca of Thai Box, the most infamous stadium in the world, yeah. like where people would like work their lives to try and fight there and they never get the opportunity and I could hear my mum screaming, smash him, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it just blew my mind, man. It was cool. Thanks, man. Australian accents can upset all accents. (laughs) Yeah, man, it was cool. It was was sick, man. So, yeah. Kind of one of the saddest things about kind of, you know, Muay Thai sort of history is that they sort of just upped and demolished the old Lumpini like. I know it's one of those funny things. Like, I'm sure someone who's really, like, well in on kind of uh, Thailand and can speak the language could explain it well. But it's also, like, like I would talk to the trainers the last time I was over there and, and they say, yeah, we, we miss Lumpini. We miss the old Lumpini. And I'd say, why, why did they close it, really? And they'd go, eh, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know Money, man. Money. Yeah. So Lumpini was, like, prime real estate in Bangkok, yeah. you know? Like, it was, like almost like right in the middle of the tourist like area and there was like like uh, night markets and there was like these fancy hotels and then there was like this just grimy stadium right smack bang in the middle that had – and the thing with Lumpini is like the stadium was, was huge but the land that it was almost massive because they had a running track out the back of the stadium for you to cut weight on on, mm. on weigh-in days. So 
man, like whoever owned it, or I think it might have even been the government. I don't know. They was obviously made an offer that they just couldn't refuse. And yeah. Yeah, man, they knocked it down. And I don't even know what's there now, man. I'm guessing it'd be like some massive high-rise apartment building. Yeah, or, something you know, to that tune. Um, yeah. Yeah. Office it, block or something like that, you know, something that doesn't serve Thailand any help, you know, like that doesn't keep the culture alive, you know, something. Yeah, but. Yeah, because I really came up watching, the, like a lot of the big fights are kind of the era that really got me into Thai boxing was that, you know, it's, Raja Damnern's probably the major one now, but Lumpini yep. definitely that era of kind of, you know, when Sanchai was finishing his stadium career and um, Nongo and Sagadao and um, Pakorn and Sam A, like all those, they're, they're, they're like, that the imagery of that original Lumpini Stadium is just so cemented in my mind from first watching Muay Thai. Like yeah, really for sure. And then, like, because I thought of the new one, and like when you the, the the name still kind of is revered. Like, oh, we're going to Lumpini, and you go, oh, cool. Like, it's it's still like, yeah, cool. We'll go to Lumpini Stadium. But then you get in this car and you drive because you're in Bangkok, but you drive it. It's not even in re, really in Bangkok, and it's definitely not in Lumpini. Like, yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah. you drive out, and it's kind of like you, you get off the sort of motorway and start to drive way out into like nowhere. Like it gets really industrial. It's surrounded by warehouses, and it's a beautiful stadium because it's you know it's new and it's yeah. quite sleek. But it's like you get there, and it's like it, it doesn't have that history. Like it's not in like that's probably the main difference. I, I I've been to Rajadam known a few times, and it's just Rajadam known is just in the thick of it in, in Bangkok and it still has that feeling. And then the new Lumpini really just feels like, like it's, a, it is like a beautiful um, structure, but it's like they just picked an open lot and just slapped it there. Like it's, it doesn't have that, that feeling of being like, it, it doesn't feel yeah. so much like a piece of, it's still cool being there, but it's, it yeah. doesn't feel like a piece of history. Yeah. I've heard that. I've never been there, but um, part of me doesn't want to because yeah. my last memory of Lumpini is, when I fought there, right? So, um, but I have heard like obviously it's still like the A class. It's still like the top level guys that fight there, but yeah. the the atmosphere is just not the same. So the fact that you fought there is still like sick that you got to that level. There's like the A class tires and you're amongst it. But um, yeah, I've heard that the atmosphere is like it's, it's a little bit clinical. You know, it's it's too clean and yeah. Uh, and it's not like, you know, like, it feels like a silly thing to say to be like, oh, it's it's too clean, but it's like, it's more so like, um, uh, we talked to um, Chad, Chad Collins, and he says, yep. like, when you're, he, he compares, he's forward at both, the new Lumpini yep. and um, Raja Dunnern, and, and he just says, like, to him, Raja Dunnern is as good as it gets because you can feel the history, like, they have the benches that you get rubbed down on. That's the same bench that was built with the stadium, and, like... Yeah, man. I, I think it kind of depends how your frame of mind is, but I think, like, a lot of fighters have that kind of... You know, I think when you go to one of the stadiums, you feel something, like, I, I don't know, you, yeah. I think, yeah, you know, like, you can feel that spirit, and, and that, like... I, I just think like part of that is just knowing you're amongst history and the way that the ties. Yeah, you, you absorb that, man. You yeah. absorb that atmosphere and that like the energy of like thousands and thousands of fights. You know what I mean? Yeah. They've like gone on and like you said, it's history and it's like it motivates you and inspires you to do the best that you can. Whereas when something's brand new and clean and new, it's kind of like you don't feel like you're part of the history, so to speak. Although you probably are more so because it's new. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like some of the pioneers to fight there, but it just doesn't have that same that same feeling, you know? Yeah. 100%. Yeah, for sure. 
But, but to get into, so kind of pull it into sort of what you're doing these days, I, I, um, I'm interested to talk to you about this because it, it's something that, that fascinates me. Um, we talked a bit. So obviously you're with one championship now. Um, yep. They like the fights in the cage with, with the little gloves, but you're not new to that. <laughs> so, um, uh, like, you know, they were doing um, little little gloves, Muay Thai in Queensland before it was cool. And, like, I was quite interested by, like, when caged Muay Thai came about, when um, Wayne and, and Angie put it together, there seemed to be kind of like a collection of fighters that really uh, were already elite Thai boxers, but they really rose to the top of that, that format. And I'd really say you were one of those. I mean, probably more so than anyone. Like, did, did anyone kind of win the strap as many times as you? I, I don't think so. Not that I know of. I know, um, obviously, Michael Bedardo did really well. Yeah, and, well I mean, John, like, John Wayne did well. But I don't think, uh, again, don't quote me. I could be wrong. But I don't think anybody had as many consecutive title defenses as I did yeah, the I, same division. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. It's not like, you know, you should really access the record. But I, I didn't, yeah. you know, you were one of the busiest. Either way, you were one of the busiest. Yeah. I, I'm curious to see what, um, you think about your style really because like you know some tie boxers don't take to the little gloves well at all um, so yep. I'm, I'm curious as to what well first of all what attributes of your style do you think really made the, the little gloves sort of your thing definitely the head movement man mm-hmm. it's um, I, I grew up in MMA gloves bro you know like yeah. like as I was coming up in the sport a lot of my training partners were MMA guys you know and uh, I would spar with them for their MMA fights and I would you know, I'd, I'd get down with them and almost in the four-ounce fight MMA gloves and we'd, we'd spar in a cage. And So for me, like, when this happened, I was like, man, this is just another night of training for me. This is nothing different, you know, and everyone's, like, losing their mind. And So I think that the thing for me is, like, the, the, the traditional style of, particularly in the Western tie boxing, this double cover yep. is a big, big tool that people use, right? But that's easy to do when you've got eight or ten-ounce gloves on. But when you got four ounce gloves on, man, it's a different kettle of fish. And I promise you, I'll, like, if there's a hole, I'll find it, right? Whereas yeah. in ten ounce gloves, it's harder to find. I think the other thing that people rely on a lot in uh, traditional type boxing is they like to use the ropes, yeah. right? So they'll lean back out of the way. And man, on the first and second ever cage more tie events, you saw so many people get knocked out. Yeah. So you got to lean back out of the way. And, oh, wait, that's right. The fence doesn't move, you know? Bang, they get cleaned up. Um, so for me, like definitely the head movement, the uh, the way that I defend as well, you know, like again, like a lot of a lot of Thai boxing is I go, you go, you know. So yeah. a lot of people like wait for someone to stop and then they try and return. Whereas I try to intercept. So the whole Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do thing again, way of the intercepting fist, right? So I'll never let people get a roll on. You know, I'll always try and inter- intercept what they do. So I think that coupled with the head movement that I spoke about really played into my defensive aspect of that. Um, and then I hit from different angles. You know, I don't hit from the generic angles that a lot of people hit from. And that's what allows me to be able to find the holes in the four-ounce gloves, you know, where people would kind of try and hide behind their forearms or whatever. I'll, I'll be able to, like, punch around their guard. And even things like rather than hitting this way, I'll kind of hit with a vertical fist and things like that to try and to, to, to find the gaps. And um, I think that's what made me successful. Yeah. Um, in the cage, you know, and like I, I know how to use the cage like effectively. Like when I knocked out Harley Averson, yeah. everybody talks about the head kick that I knocked him out with, which was huge. But what they don't see is beforehand how I dropped him that led to that, you know, like because of my experience, he was leaning against the fence and I swept his leg. 
Whereas most people that didn't have the experience in the cage that I had would, would have swept him all the way over. But I swept him just enough that he would fall into the cage but still yeah. be on his feet. So it was fair game, you know? Yeah. And then I cracked him with a, a left hand, which dropped him. And then that's what set up my head kick knockout. So I think that was really what kind of made me successful and understanding how to use the environment to my advantage rather than just like, oh, well, I'll just fight the same way as I always fight, but it's just in a different arena. Um, yeah, I think that's what it comes down to, you know? Yep. And so when, um, you know, obviously it's quite a stark change in format to go from, so so most of your career had been in the ring with the, the, the eight and 10 ounce gloves and now to get this offer like, you know, do you want to come and fight in MMA gloves in a cage? Does your training change much? Fight like you said, you had that that experience already as a backing. Uh, did you change kind of your training methods much um, to allow for that? Uh, yes and no. Like yes, in a sense that I changed my offensive attack a lot. But even when I fight in like boxing gloves, eight or ten ounce gloves, I don't um, I don't rely on covering for my defensive then either. I, you watch me fight, I'm very much, I, I like to parry and move my head because I feel like when, I, when I'm covering like this, I, I can't I can't return, you know? Like I, I can elbow maybe, but for me to punch, I have to drop my hands and then go. Whereas I find that when I'm using my, my parries and my head movement, bang, I can, I can hit on the half beat, I can hit in between the beats, I can hit on the same beat. It just gives me a lot more options. So in regards to that, like not much changes, but in terms of uh, hitting... In the uh, four ounce gloves, it, it is different, man. Like you, you, see a lot of the guys like when they when they fight for the first time, four ounce gloves, man. Like the inside of their knuckles are all like mm. busted up, but they're, they're punching, but they're not actually fighting the, the big knuckles every time because they get away with kind of like being a little bit lazy on it and like things like punching around the guard and finding that that hole with with your index knuckle and just things like that that kind of um, change things. But a big thing for me is. Uh, in the Thai boxing that a lot of people don't do is because of my background in the Wing Chun and the Jeet Kune Do and the trapping and grappling, a lot of it for me was like like controlling the wrists and like things like that and like being able to like scoop and pull down on the arms and pin it and like cross cross people over so like they, they can't uh, like use their left or right hand depending on which way I do it. So a lot of it was like implementing the different styles of martial arts that I've done and actually see that was the thing for me I think I didn't see it as a Thai boxing fight everyone was calling it a Thai boxing fight and and I never saw it that way I just thought it as like this is just a martial arts fight now this is yeah I've got to like fit between into the Muay Thai rule set but I could employ all of the skills that I've been doing since I was a kid in so many different areas and like my clinch game was so much different because I could literally like control biceps. I could control like, you know, like if you talk like to any jiu-jitsu guy, you've got handles, you know, like you've got handles on your wrist, you've got handles on your elbows and things like that. And I could really control people by doing that. And you can see that a lot of people were confused, man. And um, yeah. even like things like punching into the sternum and things like that, like in a 10-ounce in a boxing glove, it's like not a big deal. But and like in a 4-ounce glove, it's different, you mm-hmm. know, like – I uh, fought Nathan Epps from, from the UK yeah. and I punched him in the bicep, bro. I punched <laughs> him with a right hand. And or maybe it was a left hand. I can't no, I think it was a left hand. He threw an overhand right and I threw my jab yeah. and I punched him like like and it was clean, man. I felt my knuckles like pierce his bicep, bro. And he <laughs> said to me afterwards, he's like, Man, that hurts so much. Like, did you do that on purpose? I was like, Yeah, yeah, I did it on purpose. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's like, Man, I couldn't throw my right hand for the rest of the fight. So it was like just little like different things like that that I think a lot of people don't I don't know, man. I, I'm pretty creative when I when I train. You ask any of my training partners, man. I just 
I think of the weirdest things to hit them with. And if I make it work, it, you know what I mean? So I think that's what kind of made me successful in the under the cage rule set, you know? Yeah, and you touched on one thing that I, I like to get, because um, like, uh, obviously like my only experience is in the 10-ounce glove. So I do find interesting to speak to people about the differences that come up in those little gloves. Because you touched on it. Um, do you feel like it kind of opens your options up in the clinch a little bit? Because like, Obviously, that traditional tie way to clinch is they don't wear gloves and they lock their hands right together and they grip and stuff. And, and so do you think look, it's almost kind of truer to that traditional style of clinching to have the open hands of the MMA gloves? Yeah, I think so, man. Because like you think, like when you clinch in Thailand, you never wear gloves. Yeah. You know, like, like obviously when you fight, you do, but like when you're in the gym, they make you clinch, no gloves, no wraps. So to a degree, it's similar there, but I think... It, it like it if you know how to use your fingers and things properly, it gives you so much more control mm. of people. You know, Whereas I think even when you see guys that still fight now, you know, they're, they're like even in a four ounce glove, they're like they're still cupping their hands and trying to control this way. Whereas, I mean, like you can grab the wrist and you can do so many different things. Um, and the way that you can like pin, like I've got some like cool things where like even when I take from like some of the the MMA style of things where like I, if they've got an underhook, I can overhook and then pass the other hand and grab it. So now they I've got both hands trapped, but I've got one hand free, you know, so I can continue to hit them with the other hand, and that's completely legal, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, so I think that the clinch game gets a lot more interesting um, if you know how to use it, um, and I think now with like one people are really starting to open their eyes to like, let's like fully make sure we fit in with the rule set here and like make sure that we're understanding like how far we can get with the different type of gloves, you know? Um, and I think it's only going to get better because of that. Um, yeah. So really I should stop telling people about all these things. <laughs> they're going to work it out. <laughs> Keep it close to the chest. Yeah. Well, yeah. I this talk about one, but before I get to that, like it's interesting that you say, like, you know, would you say to some, like, you know, the fighters now like to – Look and expand your repertoire. Like you know, obviously do Thai boxing. You got a Thai box, yeah. You got to do the more Thai. But maybe like learn something from a wrestler or learn like something from jujitsu. Just like the absolutely, man. Yeah, hundred percent. So even in my like my my Thai style grapple, I employ so many fundamentals and even specific techniques from Brazilian jujitsu that I've done over the years. You know, like to the point where I'll use like a standing De La Hiva hook on someone to shut them down. <laughs> you know, like. um that, like this is the thing with, with me and again it comes back to the whole jikundo thing like take from everywhere you know um, if it works it works man if it doesn't then you'll find out pretty quickly you know like and lesson learned so man that, that would be 100% my advice to anyone it's like I mean if you're passionate about Thai boxing then that's cool and if that works for you and that's your style but you're going to come to a point where you're going to meet someone that's as good at Thai boxing as you are. So how are you going to beat that guy if you're 50, 50, but also how's he going to beat you, right? It becomes a, who can take more punishment, but if you can like expand your, your repertoire and like open your mind, so to speak, you'll, you'll have so many different things where it's like, all right, well, I might not use this every single time I fight, but if I come up against someone that's got like the same skill set, the same attributes as me, I'll have a way to, to get around it rather than like, oh, well, I'll just do what I always do and hope for the best. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And do you find that's not like really the common take in Muay Thai? Like people want to be a little bit more rigid and... I, th- I think it's getting better. Yeah. Um, I think like, even look at like the new breed of Thai fighters that are coming out, man, they've got wicked hands. Yeah. 
Whereas a little while ago, man, they didn't. You know, it was, it was like I always used to get in trouble for using my hands and sparring in Thailand. You know, it was like, oh, no, you got to kick. Like punches yeah. don't score. Whereas now, like you look at guys like Rod Tang and people like that, man, these guys have just got wicked hands. So I do think that it is changing. And I think, again, like with the implement um, of like one championship in the cage and like now you've got a lot of Thai boxers fighting kickboxers and kickboxers fighting Thai yeah. boxers. You've even got guys with MMA backgrounds fighting in different rule sets. Mm. So I think people are like really realizing like, oh shit, I kind of have to learn how, if I'm going to fight a kickboxer as a Thai boxer, I've got to know how to throw some punches because mm. I can't just keep kicking, you know? Like you look at Siddhachai, for example, like, mm. man, he's got such a Thai style, but it's he has blended it and adapted it to suit kickboxing, hence why he was like five-time glory champ or whatever he was, you know? Um, so I definitely think that it's changing, but you're right, for a long time, it, like it was frowned upon, man, like, I've not been invited back to, to different shows over the years because of my style, you know, because I, I'm not like all my weight on, the, on my back foot, bouncing my front foot up and down. I've got a very uh, different sort of style. It's not the classic Thai boxing style, uh, but it works, you know, and it's, it's exciting, you know, like no one knows what I'm going to do next because I don't know what I'm going to do next. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> like, it's explosive and flamboyant. And I don't know, man, I think that's what people want to see these yeah. days. They're, like, as much as like I love like classic tie boxing and and I love seeing like two top tires go at it, I think I think like like it, it the world is opening new doors now. People are like wanting to see different things. And you see like like likes of Conor McGregor, for example, who comes into like a, a boxing and wrestling dominated UFC and brings in his taekwondo and karate style background starts knocking people out with this vicious left hand it's like almost reminiscent of like a reverse punch from his karate days and it's like people are like man it's cool because it's different and I think that's what's going to be the difference with one championship versus the UFC as things progress because I think there's so much more variety now yeah. and uh, not even just from like kickboxing, tie boxing, MMA and even within just MMA itself like if you look back at like the old even the old legend days even prior to a degree and uh, one championship before they were doing the Super Series, there was so much diversity in the athletes. You know, like guys would be coming in from like a Wushu background, Sandar background. And I mean, they still knew how to wrestle. They still knew how to do jiu-jitsu, but their main focus was like a traditional martial art that they had spent like forever learning and they adopt, like, adapted it to suit the modern rule set, you know? So I, I think that, that's that's going to be the difference for both Thai boxing and the MMA moving forward. So like yeah, we talked about one a couple of times. So let's let's get into it from there. So like you're like one of the first Aussies to be ever signed onto one from that. Like um, well, how did the process actually happen? How did you get in contact with them? Were they going to get in contact with you? Like how did it go down? Um, a bit of both. So um, I, I was the first Australian to ever fight for one championship, and and the first Australian to win. First to win as well, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I saw that they did a cage more tie fight with some A and. Joseph What's that? Was that Joseph Lassiri first up for Sam A, the, the Italian? It could have been. I can't remember now. It was it was a while ago. And I remember seeing it and I was like, and at the time I was in talks with like two other major promotions and we're kind of going back and forth. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just get like a one-fight deal with these guys if that's what they're doing. And then that'll tie me over. And I mean, I was a big fan of one championship mm. for a long time. And I was like, yeah, cool. So... Um, my dad had a few connections with other fighters that he trained. Um, so he knew the guys at one. So he reached out to Rick and said, uh, Hey Rick, um, 
my son, this is his record, man. Like, I see you guys are doing cage with Dyer. He's never been beaten in the cage. This is like who he's fought, what he's done. And, and uh, Rick was like, yeah, awesome, man. Like, right now, we're not sure what we're doing, but we'll get back to you. So, like, they weren't sure if it was just as a one-off or whatever, you know. They are just kind of testing the waters. So, anyway, like, some time went by, and we didn't really hear anything. And, you know, it was like, all right, cool, no worries. Like, Christmas happened and things like that. Then, uh, out of nowhere, we get this email saying, hey, you guys still interested in fighting with one? I was like, yeah. So he's like, all right, cool. Um, I'll, get, I'll get back to you. So then a couple of days later, he, he emails me. He says, hey, um, or emails my dad and says, hey, would you fight Cosmo Alexandre? And uh, my dad didn't even have to talk to me. He just said, yep. <laughs> so then he goes, okay, cool. Like, are you happy to fight him under MMA rules? So my dad's like, I didn't know Cosmo did MMA. He goes, yeah, yeah, he's seven and one. He fought for Bellator and everything. Yeah. So again, my dad didn't even call me. He was like, Yep, no worries, all good. So he rings me, he goes, hey, um, you want to fight Cosmo? I was like, yep. He's like, oh, okay. Do you want to fight him MMA? Yep. And so I was like, all right, cool. So we signed it, man. We're like, we're ready to go, MMA. And um, about two days later, he emails again. They're like, actually, would you be open to a rule change? So I was like, yeah. So they said, will you fight Thai boxing? So I was like, yeah, no worries. So they said, well, look, if you want, we'll offer you a, like a multi-fight deal and we'll incorporate MMA clause in the contract. So you got both Thai boxing and MMA. So I was like, all right, cool. So then they, they sent through a six-fight contract and it was good, man. Like the money was good and we're like, cool, bro. Like, let's do it. So, um, and like I said, I've been talking to a couple of European-based promotions, one American, and it was like, it was, it was arduous, man. It was like back and forth, back and forth. And in the end, I was like, man, these guys are like straight to it. You know what I mean? They're, they're right on it. Yep, let's go. So we signed it and then... Three weeks later, two, two and a half weeks later-ish, I fought Cosmo. Um, so literally, it was short notice, man. I hadn't fought in a, in a while. And, you know, like, I, everything was awesome, man. The way they looked after us was sweet. And I, I was stoked to be there. And, you know, we, I fought. And, man, I, I had a great first round and a great second round. And I just got caught with a, a step-up knee, which, if you listen to the commentary, Michael Chavello says either Elliot's going to stop him with elbows or Cosmo's going to stop him with knees. And I, I, I cut him pretty bad in the first round. You can't really see it on the camera, but uh, he got, I think, got like eight stitches it was between his cornrows, man. I like hit him with this spike <laughs> elbow and I was like, boom, it was perfect. And uh, yeah, man, I felt good. And unfortunately, I got caught, but it was, it was a cool experience, man. Like, Cosmo's a legend of a dude, too, man. Like oh, yeah. the whole, the whole, like, fight week we'd like see each other in a lift in a hotel or a restaurant and we'd talk and hang out and like it was like cool and then even on fight night man like it was like a half an hour 45 minutes before we're due to fight and we're like out in the corridor just having a chat man you know like it was like anyway bro i'll see you out there you know it was, and it was cool and then even when i got in the ring man like i run around like i always get in i touch gloves with my opponent always and as i touch gloves he's like hey man i really like your walkout song and i was like oh cool thanks man and then um and then he took my soul with the left knee. So that was that, you know. That was cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you're the first person we ever had on here that's, like, fought for one before. And, like, um, was that back when you f- first fought in, like, the way and stuff? Like, a lot of people ask, like, you know, what's the deal? Like, do they check in before, like, a couple weeks beforehand? And, like, they do a couple weigh-ins from there? Yes. Deal? So, contractually, you have to be within 5% of your weight all of, all of the time. Um, so for me, I fight at lightweight, which is 77 kilos, 77.1. So I have to be roughly 80.5, no heavier, which I never am anyway. I always weigh in under. Um, so the way that it works is 
um, they they can just randomly test you, like come and like randomly check your weight and check your hydration. But generally, you've got to weigh in twice, right? So the weigh in is normally at one o'clock. Say the fights are Friday night, one o'clock on a Wednesday and one o'clock on a Thursday. But to pass weigh in, you have to pee in a cup, and they specific gravity test it. There's like a machine that they put in, and it tells them like the the salt to water ratio. I'm assuming I don't know the full science behind it, but basically it tells you if you're dehydrated or not. So you've got to be under zero point two fifty. Anything above that, you're dehyd- too dehydrated, and anything below is clear. So point zero 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 is just pure distilled water. Hmm. So um, you got to you pee in the cup. They test it. If you pass the hydration, then you step straight on the scales. And then if you pass like your weight, then you make it. If you miss hydration or weight on either one of those days, you have to weigh in on fight day. And if you miss on fight day, your opponent has to be within 5% of your, you have to be within 5% of your opponent's weigh in weight, not the, the cutoff. So let's say, for example, you, you fight at 77, but you weigh in at 73. He has to be within 5% of your weigh-in weight at 73, not 77, to make sure that everyone's safe. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, that very rarely happens. Yeah. Um, but, uh, man, when I fought in Myanmar, uh, he, the guy missed weight, you know? Um, yeah, it is what it is. He missed weight and missed hydration on both days and had to do it on fight day. And I didn't even see what he did on fight day. I'm assuming he made it, but. I didn't bother asking. Um, so, yeah, man, like that's pretty much how it works. It sounds like super complicated, but it's actually not, man. It's like it's only complicated if you try and cheat it. Yeah. You know, and, that, and like I think that was the thing with the guy that I fought. Like I think, I don't know, he, he said he was sick, so maybe he was. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't throw stones. But um, at the end of the day, man, like if you show up and you're on weight, you just eat and drink normally. That's it. It's simple. It's to stop people from cutting weight. So if you're trying to cut weight and you're trying to find a way around the system, yeah, I'm sure it's tricky. But like for me, man, I walk around underweight. I think the heaviest that I ever weighed in for a fight with one championship for a 77.1 kilo cutoff was 76 flat. So I'm like a kilo under. And the most dehydrated I've ever been was 0.031 or something, which is like next to fully hydrated. So it's easy, man. Like it's a breeze for me, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I contemplated even going down to featherweight, but I, they offered me a couple of fights at featherweight. One was against Yod, and uh, man, I would have loved to have done it, but we just—I just couldn't make it, bro. Yeah. And we talked about a catch weight or whatever, but he wanted to go too low, and I was like, I just don't want to risk my health anymore, man. I'm, like it's not worth it, especially to fight someone like Yod, who's an absolute killer. I want to be—I want to feel good. I want to be like distraught, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> so. Um, yeah, man, I, I love it. Bro. I don't think the weigh-in system is wicked. I don't think everyone should do it. Mm. I mean, it's probably got some flaws if you spoke to some scientists about it, but it's better than these guys that are sitting in the sauna for like six weeks at a time to make weight, you know, like and they're getting in and they're like 15 kilos heavier than their opponent and someone's getting hurt. I, th- yeah. I think it's great, man. Like I, I never realized how good I felt until I fought Cosmo for not cutting weight. Mm. So obviously everyone cuts a little bit or whatever, but I, like, I remember walking out thinking, man, I feel so alert. Like, I feel like I was so on. And then when I fought, I felt awesome, man, up until you need me. But I was like, man, this is, this is like, 
I, I felt sharp. I felt like I was in the Matrix, man. And the only thing I could put that down to is obviously adrenaline for being on the big show, but like the fact that I hadn't cut weight and I just felt, I felt like the, I felt healthy. I know that sounds ridiculous as an athlete. You should feel healthy on game day, but and anyone that's a fighter will tell you like most fighters don't feel healthy on game day, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm lucky to be here. You know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And did that move to one? Like, so was the, the weight, uh, weighing protocol kind of something that was considered in the lead up and, and did you move up in weight um, when you went to one or, or were you just kind of the, the weight that you preferred to fight at you were comfortable with under that? No, so, so Rick pretty much just asked us like what weight do we normally fight at and I fought at like 70 between 70 and 72.5 yeah. so he's like okay and what do you normally walk around at and I was like 77-ish you know 77, 78 sometimes if I'm, if I'm being lazy so he's like, all right, cool. You, you're going to be a lightweight. That'd be perfect. We're looking for lightweights. Um, so yeah, man, that was that was that. It was easy. Um, there was no real thought went into it. Um, when I fought Cosmo, I actually weighed in at like seventy four point one on the first day and seventy three point eight on the second day. I don't know what happened, bro, but I got so light. It was like I was working with a, a dietitian that just like either really knew his shit or was like. <laughs> Man, I just want to play this super safe, you know, mm. uh, which was crazy because, like, I remember leaving. I flew out from Brisbane at like seventy six point eight or something, and I was like, "Oh, that's pretty close." Like, yeah. I've got three hundred grams to play with, and then when I landed, I was like seventy five, and we landed on the Monday. Then by the time I weighed in, I was like seventy four point one and seventy three point nine, where he just knew how to like eat the right foods. I don't know what it was, man. And then when I stepped in. Cosmo, so we fought on Friday night. Cosmo posted on the Sunday that he was 93 kilos or something. Oh. Yeah, bro. <laughs> and I was like, I stepped on the scales and I was 74.9. Yeah, Cosmo's a big dude, man. It, bro, he gets bigger every round. Yeah, that's <laughs> nuts, bro. Yeah, man. Yeah, he's a big fella. Man, yeah. That's cool. um, so, yeah, man, I like, so there was that, that's kind of how, like, the catch weight, uh, and maybe featherweight kind of came up, but I mean, like, I I just didn't, I couldn't do it to myself, man. I hadn't been walking around at seventy kilos since I was like, like twenty one years old, and now I'm like thirty one, and I know I look twenty one, but it was like, it was yeah, it was too much, man. So for the sake of my health and performance, we decided to stay at, stay at seventy seven, and I I had a new strength and conditioning coach. So I just started working with when I signed with one, so we just pumped iron for. A few months, man, I put on a couple of kilos and like now I'm good, man. Like I don't worry about not making weight. I just train and I got I work with uh Geordie Sullivan, the fight dietitian. Oh yeah. And like yeah, we're like super in tune with each other and uh, yeah, man, like life's good, bro. I eat good food and it's well, nice yeah, to live. <laughs> yeah, man. You mentioned yeah. uh, you mentioned you've trained jujitsu for a while. How long have you been doing that for? I started jujitsu when I was like I think it was like eight, so Grade six. How have you? How have you all doing? Grade grade six. Maybe that's nine. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. But before I did jujitsu, I did a lot of like nogi stuff with my dad, like in the uh, the shoot wrestling and things like that. Training with Eric Paulson and those guys. So um, it was kind of like it was just a natural progression, you know. We shared a, a gym with a guy that was a jujitsu uh, guy, who's uh, Damus Fry, and my, my old man was training under him, and just kind of was a natural progression and. To be fair, like I'm not as as consistent with jujitsu. Well, actually, I am now. But for 
from like through my teen years, like I, I really focused on my striking a lot more. Mm. But from probably like eighteen onwards, I like I'm on the mat every single day, man. Like um, obviously, like my old man is. He, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but he would literally do eight hours of jujitsu every day. Because yeah. like he's a PT, right? So a lot of his clients are jujitsu guys. So he's just constantly rolling. And, uh, you know, we've got a few high-level brown belts, high-level purple belts and stuff in the gym. And, and, like, if we ever get half an hour, I mean, to be fair, not at the moment with COVID, but if we ever get an hour, half an hour, all we do is train, man, we'll roll. Or, yeah, man, I love it, bro. It's, like, it's the thing that, like, sometimes, like, I mean, you, you guys will get it. Like, when you're training for a fight and tie boxing, like, there's, there's always pressure. You know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, don't get me wrong, man, I love pressure. I feed off pressure. It's, like... I feel like that's what makes me like respond and react. But sometimes it's nice to just do something where there's like, it doesn't matter. Like Mm. if you don't get something that day, it's not going to affect you. Like it's not going to like, like, like upset the rhythm of your camp. You can just train. And it's like my escape from everything, you know? Um, Having said that, I I do want to compete jujitsu again. I haven't competed jujitsu since I was a kid, Um, but I will. Like, I don't know if maybe I'll do it after fighting. I mean, part of me, wants to leave it there as like my retirement plan, you know, like, so I've got something to focus on and something that I can move into, Um, like go and do like the masters and things like that. But in Vegas, yeah. Yeah. Especially now I'm an old geezer, you know, like, I don't know, man. I just (laughs) like, I I, I, I just love rolling, man. It's like, so yeah, I'll I'll see what happens there, but I mean, I'm I'm definitely keen to fight MMA too. So I got to make sure that I stay super active on that. Like, so I do a lot of gi and no gi jujitsu. Uh, Still trained with like Damo, Damian Brown's like one of my main sparring partners, XUFC and Aaron Blackie and Matt Seed and Jaden Binney. These guys, man, these guys are killers, bro. Like a lot of people might not know who some of these like younger guys are, man, but you guys will know pretty soon, man. These guys are killers, bro. So, what belt yeah, have you cool. gotten to in uh, jiu-jitsu? I'm a brown belt. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So, um, yeah, I've been a brown belt now for 18 months or something like that. Um, yeah. So. Which is crazy because I've been doing jiu-jitsu for so long, but that's the downside of having a dad as your coach. <laughs> it's like the, the, the level of things is so much higher that you got to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, and especially because he's very particular and he will never have anyone question like, oh, did you just get that because your dad's the coach? It's like, you know what I mean? If if someone's going to do 10 to get something, I've got to do 100 to yeah. make sure that like I'm fully, I fully earned it, which I love, man. Like, I mean, like it comes back to like what we were saying with fighting, you're like, you don't want to have this perfect record and be like, yeah, but I only got it because I fought bums. Yeah. Same things. I wouldn't want to be a second degree black belt and go, yeah, I only got it because that's my coach. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I want to know that I've earned it. I would, I'd know, like, if I go and travel and I go and do, do jiu-jitsu, I know I've earned it because I can hang with some of these guys, you know what I mean? Like, that are top, like some of the jiu-jitsu guys that I've trained with over in the US and things like that. I mean, like, to be honest, I'm not going to call them out and fight them, but I, mean, I, I hang with some of these like like high level brown belts and high level black belts and and like super famous gyms and and like that. I'm, I'm happy with that, you know. So I, I know that like man, I, I I've earned to get to where I am, and mm. I think that's important, you know. Yeah. What's your What's your favorite sub- submission? Favorite submission, man, the golden triangle, bro. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. I, man. You ask the boys, bro. I I triangle everyone, man. I've got these long ass stupid legs and. <laughs> and I got I got some real cool like funky setups that I get people with, and yeah. that's my go-to. Nice. Yeah, man, it's my favorite as well. I'm trying to convince Shane; he's got little stumpy hobbit legs. I'm trying yeah, to convince right. him they'll, no. they'll work. Girl tends to really make it all day. 
listen, you mentioned also that you incorporated some jiu-jitsu techniques with your Muay Thai. Was, uh, you mentioned the De La Hiva guard. Yeah, so I just came across it one day in the gym. I was I, I was grappling with this with this guy that just like was he was a better grappler than me to be honest. Like, and he was just nonstop. Like, he'd get me against the ropes and he's just knee knee knee. And I was trying knee guard and I was trying all these things. And I just couldn't shut him down. And it just happened that I like I threaded my leg around the outside and I put my hook on the far leg as he went to knee. And man, he couldn't knee. Him. Now, and I wasn't sweeping him, so it's not technically illegal for Thai boxing. Mm. It's just shut him down. And uh, from there, like, then I worked out, like, cool, well, now I've got this. I used the ropes as a post or the cage as a post. I've got this. And I use, I almost, like, apply so much pressure into his leg that his post becomes my post. And then now I've got my arms free and I can type his arms and I can continue to hit an elbow. And they, they kind of become paralyzed. And then you can kind of, like, use that to then hop around and turn them and put them against the fence. Um, so then from there, I just kind of just play around with things like that, you know, like different like uh, sweeps from guard and stuff I'll use, but obviously standing. Because if you think about like jujitsu, right, if you look at someone like guard, right, like if the, like this is their person on the back, generally speaking, like they're on top here, right, or whatever. So if you take that same position, you stand upright, it's the same position as a tight clinch. Mm. So there's so many like different uh, variations that you can apply. And uh, like one of my main training partners, Aaron Blackie, is a uh, a judo black belt, so and and he's also a uh, jiu-jitsu black belt too. So and a very good jiu-jitsu black belt. So we kind of just bounce ideas off each other with like a bit of judo, a bit of jiu-jitsu, a bit of tie clinching, and just play around and see what we can come up with, man. And I think it's cool, bro, because it's like you know, when I go and like clinch with the ties or some of the other guys that like I hit them with shit that they'd never seen before. Yeah. And it's like you know, and it's cool, man. Like and then I remember we were cornering cornering Damo when when fight when he was fighting the UFC, he was fighting the guy. Um, Frank Camacho who had this wicked foot trip and uh, I remember like watching this tire that was like negating a foot trip by like hitting it like, like almost like a knee tap but was using like pushing on the hip and I was like thinking at the time I was like man I'm going to use that and I kind of developed it for tie boxing over, over the time and I remember showing Damo in the dressing room and Aaron was like man that's cool like I'm a judo black belt and I've never seen that before that's cool so anyway, we kind of like drilled it in the dressing room like five minutes before he went out to fight and he fought. And sure enough, Frank went to hit this like this trip and Damo like knee tapped him, man, and put him on his back. And it's like what we just drilled in the, and it was like, so the, then it was like this crossover of like, I mean, that knee tap's almost like a wrestling slash also jiu-jitsu style takedown that I'd used for tie boxing. And we did now blended to MMA that's been used at like the highest level in the UFC. Like, So it's cool to kind of like see it all come together, you know? It's yeah, gel those different uh, fighting styles and concepts all together. Exactly, man. It's like, again, it comes back to the whole thing that I've been saying this whole time, like the Jeet Kune Do concept will apply to everything, man, you know? It's like, and I think that I think that's what, what's, what gets me so passionate about it, man. It's like it's, it's a never-ending journey. Once you think you know something, you don't, bro. Mm, it's yeah. like that, like, I remember GSP said, like, the more I learn, the less I know, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, man, it's so true. 100%. Which yeah. begs the question, what, what, um, Obviously, you got all the options. What rule set do we see Elliot Compton in in one championship next? Oh, you put me <laughs> on the spot there, bro. Um, well, put it this way, right? I was signed to fight on the tenth of April yeah. in Jakarta on the One Infinity show. You know that new Liga show that they've just announced that they're yeah. doing. It's like the, the, like with all the bells and whistles and everything. So I was I can't tell you who I was going to fight because the fight's still going to happen, and I've sworn to secrecy until they've announced it. 
but it was a kickboxing fight. Okay. Yeah, against a very big name. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll let you guys do the maths. Look at the <laughs> rankings. You'll work it out. Um, Exciting. In my opinion, it's the biggest fight in the sport, especially in the sport of kickboxing. Nice. Um, on the biggest show of the year, and uh, so that's that's what I was like. So essentially, K one rules. Yeah. Um, but if I had to choose like a preferred rule set, it'd probably be the tie boxing. Um, but I also want to fight shoot boxing, bro. You know, like okay. I know, I know, like Chartres kind of hinted at it, and I know number four in the divisions, Andy Sauer. So okay. if this other fight that I signed, you know, it doesn't go through or whatever, then I mean that could be an option too. Um, I mean, I love Andy Sauer. I don't take that the wrong way. I'm not yeah, calling him out, trying to flex on him, but it'd be cool to fight him. Yeah, um, shoot boxer. Man, I'd love to actually fight him MMA too. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just think it'd be an interesting yeah. matchup, you know, like kickboxer versus tie boxer on MMA rules. It's like, it's intriguing, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. 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 Um, the thing about one as well, like, you know, it's, they seem very open. Like you've seen the Sander match on before. Yeah. They had the boxing uh, title on also. They're pretty open to like going, hey, let's see some like cool martial arts stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. They do the grappling matches. Like they had Askren and Aoki and, yeah. Man, like I think that's cool, man. Like it's um it's eclectic and it's like it opens this is what I think is great about uh why I think like Thai boxing is making a resurgence, right? So with the growth of the UFC, like they kind of blew everyone out of the water, right? Yeah. MMA became this new thing. Like back in the day, if you said you did MMA, people would go, Oh, is that kind of like kickboxing? Mm. Whereas now you say, oh, I'm a kickboxer, they go, Oh, you fight in the UFC. You know, it's like <laughs> it's completely switched through mainstream media, mainstream marketing, everything else. And the the boxing to a degree, but mainly like kickboxing and tie boxing kind of got like pushed aside and people were like, forgot about it, you know? Mm. And, uh, but it was shit because like, the, like we were trained as hard as anybody else, you know? And these MMA guys were getting like all the credit and it's like, well, we're equally as talented and trained as hard and everything else. And it, like the thing that blew everyone's mind is people hated watching MMA fights. that was like predominantly a ground fight. Mm. They wanted to see two guys stand up and hit each other, you know? It was like, that's what we do. You know what I mean? Like tune yeah. in to watch us, yeah. you know? So I think the cool thing with one is where they've now got Thai boxing and kickboxing, they're exposing like these world-class athletes to the mainstream MMA fans now. And they've yeah. done it so well. Like they got Demetrius Johnson, they got Eddie Alvarez, Sage Northcutt as like the, the top names from like the Western MMA world. And they got like the top names from the Western uh, Thai boxing world, like guys like myself and uh, Cosmo and people like that. And then they've also got like Nikki Holskin, Andy Sauer and like all like Petrosian, Jabba, I mean, like, but they then also got the biggest names from, like, the Asian world and, like, the Middle East. So they've really taken what was a, an MMA-dominated industry and said, you guys like this, but, hey, look at all these guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Look at, look at these world-class athletes that have been overlooked for essentially, like, the last five to ten years. And now people are like, oh, man, these guys are awesome. And it's kind of like building the sport again and giving, like, the other athletes the, the respect that they, they deserve, you know? Yeah. Um, if you go back to like the evolution days, like what's that eight years ago now? Like, yeah. and like that was like the biggest show in the world almost for Thai boxing, yeah, other than what was there. going on in Thailand, you know, especially in the Western world, you know, kickboxing was big, Glory was doing big things and like Bellator kickboxing. But as far as Thai boxing goes in the Western community, Evo was the thing, right? Yeah. So, and it was almost like you made it to Evo, like you've made it to the equivalent of one championship now. Yeah. So it's cool to see there's a platform that people can aim towards now rather than just fighting on the, the local shows at the local tavern and, you know, getting paid 500 bucks or whatever. It's like, now it's like, man, I can actually make a career out of this and mm -hmm. I can afford to put food on the table for my family out of something that I'm passionate about. It's, it's really cool.
Yeah, and kind of like it grows the quality of the sport when you give a generation of up-and-comers something to aspire to because because that's kind of what really uh, played a hand in Muay Thai's status lowering. He's like any young kid who's getting into fighting, he wants to fight in the UFC. Because, yeah, for you sure. Know, and, and fair play, people want to make some good coin fighting and, and they want to fight on a big stage. Like For a time, Muay Thai didn't really have a stage if you weren't going to go and move over to Thailand. Like, one yeah. championship really gives that mainstream kind of platform for people to shoot for. Exactly, man. Yeah. And, and the, the downside at the time when, uh, in terms of trying to make money, like when the main the main stage for Thai boxing was in Thailand, the money's not good in Thailand, bro. Yeah, no, it's, it's a third world country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, And you, you can't get the same sponsorship because there's not the same broadcasting yeah. and things like that. Whereas now, like one championship, they've got 1.8 billion viewers, bro. Like yeah. that's massive, man. Dude. So the the sponsorship potential, everything like you can actually make a successful career out yeah. of fighting again as a Thai boxer or a kickboxer. Whereas for a long time it was like you could have a successful career, but you were still working a, a nine to five, or you were still working some kind of job, or yeah. you were living in pretty poor conditions because there's not a lot of money in Thai boxing in this country. But I think this is the thing. Like when Evo was around, there was a lot more money in Thai boxing because they set a standard. You know, they set like. This is the benchmark. This is the A-League. This is where you want to get to. And this is what we pay you guys. And then the next level down was like, well, this is what we're going to pay. And then the next level. So it kind of added some sort of structure, whereas when Evo uh, like stopped and like shows like Total Carnage, War on the Shore, Knees of Fury, they all kind of stopped at the same time. Yeah, so all yeah. the kind of little shows were like offering like, they were offering shit money that they knew that they were taking the piss. You know what I mean? They shouldn't have been offering guys like me to fight Eli Madigan 500 bucks, you know? Um, like, so it was like, now that one championship is back, like they, again, they've set a standard. They've set a, be- a benchmark for the sport. Like this is the top. This is what we're paying you guys. This is how we're looking after. It's not even about the money necessarily, but this yeah. is like, this is how we're looking after you. This is what we're going to do for you. This is how we're going to build your profile, build your career and do this. So then all these other promotions are like, well, you know what? Let's follow suit because they're obviously making money, so let's kind of like try and like yeah. follow their footprint, so to speak. You know, um, so I think it, I think it's positive for everyone, man. For MMA, for Thai boxing, for kickboxing, for boxing, for jujitsu, um, I just think it makes the whole sport bigger and brings the community closer together again. Man, there's a big divide for a long time. Thai boxers yeah. hated boxers. Boxers hated Thai boxers. For real. <laughs> MMA guys used to call us Thai boxers skinny little weasels. You know what I mean? Like it was like. I mean, but now everyone's like, oh, you do Thai boxing? Oh, cool. Let's train together. You know, yeah. it's cool, man. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. It's like fighting's fighting, right? Like, there's just different ways to do it. Of course, man. When that cage door shuts or you're in that ring, man, it's, it's still two dudes that, like, want to win. And, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Win at all costs. Like, it is what it is. Rule set might be different, but it's still essentially the same thing. Yeah. You know? Just, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, man. So, like, um, just going to the last little thing from there. So, <clears throat> talking about that, you know, everything's been about fighting for you ever since a young age. But now you're kind of going a little bit after. You're still using it, but also, like, um, going outside the box a little bit and doing motivational speaking for, like, um, for yep, troubled youths. Like, uh, how did you get into that? And, like, you know, and, and yeah, how's, how's the whole experience been? Yeah, man. It's, it's really... It's nice to know that I've given back through. I mean, like, you hear a lot of people when they talk about, like, the sport, they're like, man, I've given my everything to this sport and, you know, I've given so much of myself and 
Whereas I see it as the opposite, man. I feel like the sport has given me so much. You know, like at the end of the day, man, I, I spend every single day in the gym with my dad, who's my best mate. I travel the world. I fight these guys. I mean, I don't have to work a job that I hate. There's nothing negative about my life, man. I, like I'm truly blessed. As corny as it sounds, like everything in my life is perfect. You know, I wouldn't change anything. Um, so for me, it, it's nice to know that, like, through something that's given me so much, if I can then pay that forward and hope that, like, if I talk to these these like young lads, not even necessarily just the young, young like young kids that are trouble, just anyone that's having a tough time or you know, like lost for a bit of direction, I think it's it's important to be able to pay that back and again that's what keeps this thing going around you know but the 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 funny part of it is is what actually uh, really got me into it is when i was younger i kind of went off the rails a little bit and got myself into not a lot of trouble but you know like as you do as a teenager and a guy that my dad used to train was a bouncer at one of the major clubs in brisbane and i was always underage sneaking in and getting into fights and whatever else you know and uh he always used to look out for me. He always like look after me, and if, if things ever got real serious, he'd always like be there, you know. And uh, at the time, I thought like, "Hey, man, like look at this. I'm getting into this nightclub, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that." But the thing was, is he was like looking after me, and I just was too young and naive to see it, you know. So anyway, he, he ended up becoming a cop, and uh, he trained with us. He had a few fights and whatever else, and he got stationed out at uh, Dumaji, which is like rural Queensland for a while. But he ended up um, getting moved around to Harvey Bay. We were actually doing a seminar at a martial arts club in Harvey Bay and he rang me and he said, hey man, I've got this group of young kids that are like, some of them are fresh out of like juvie, some are like about to go to juvie, some like their parents want nothing to do with them. It was through the Salvation Army. Would you be interested in having a chat with them? I was like, man, for sure, because that was me, you know, like I was at a point where I'd gone off the rails and I'd stopped training for a little bit. I was at a, a crossroads in my life and it was, it was my dad that kind of came home from work one day and just gave me like the most motivational talk that I'd ever heard. And I was like, man, I've got to get myself back in the gym and do something with myself. And uh, that's what kind of put me back on, on the right track. So I was like, this is my chance to, like I said, pay it forward. So I did it, man. And you know, they had like a, a cop there that was like not my mate, a different cop that kind of like, so the idea was I smashed pads for these kids and kind of got their attention. And they were like, whoa, you know, like, seeing a dude with like tattoos and you know, tattoos on his hands and like scars on his face, whatever. They're like, Oh, it's cool. So like they fully tuned in. Right. And before I spoke, this cop wanted to say a few words and this cop was just like, and he was just a knob bro. Like he just told, <laughs> like spoke to these kids, like, yeah. like they were pieces of shit, you know? And I could just see like, they just completely switched off from the whole thing. They're like, Oh yeah, here we go. This is the same old shit. Get back in school. You, if you don't go back to school, you're going to be, bums and drug addicts and this and that and like so anyway after he stopped talking and i got up and i was like oh, anyway so like everything that that guy said like ignore it he, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about man he's he's never been in this position he's he's had everything given to him his whole life you know like so anyway like i told him my story and i told him how i came up and how it is like the positivity of martial arts and being surrounded by positive blah, 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 you know like everything else and um like they all came up and they were like looking, at, wanted to look at my belts and they wanted to hit pads and it was like I was like, man, this is like a really cool thing. And then like a month later, I checked in with my mate and I was like, hey man, did any of those like kids do anything? He's like, bro, over half of them joined the gym that day. And I was like, okay. And how many of them stayed? He said, all of them. I was like, man, this is like the coolest thing. I said, and what are they doing? Are they still like doing drugs? And he's like, no nah, man, they're like 
like their new addiction is like health and fitness, bro. They're convinced that they want to fight. I was like, this is the coolest thing. So from there, just kind of like just similar to my fight career, I just started doing more and more. And I've got some things in the pipeline that I'm working on at the moment. That I, like when I when it's all said and done, I'll let you guys know. You'll be the first to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know, man. I just love it, bro. I think it's important to, like I said before about like protecting your record and things like that. And I think about legacy. Me, like especially now like i've got a, a young daughter and things like that and it's like i want people to look back and it's it's not necessarily who you were but what you did that, that counts you know it's like it's like i can bash people all day long but that doesn't make me a good person it doesn't leave a, a mark on the world you know like life's short man and it's unpredictable who knows what could happen tomorrow you know so to know that i, I left some sort of mark and some sort of positivity in the world is it's important to me. I know it sounds corny and people go, Oh yeah, it's just saying that you're on a podcast, but man, I, I, I truly mean that, you know, it's like, I'm passionate about it, man. So yeah, man, like that's it. It's, it's just cool. You know, and we get young guys that come in the gym all the time and it's cool to see them turn their lives around, man. And even older guys, bro, we have guys that come in like they're like fresh out of prison and still mm-hmm. doing the wrong things. And they come in and they train and like, man, like no matter of no time, they're like completely reformed, you know? And it's like, and that's not something that we've done. That's in them, man. Like someone that wants to change, someone that can change wants to change. You know, it's like yeah. you can't take someone and tell them to be something that they're not. But sometimes people just need a bit of help finding that thing that's yeah. already in them. You know, and I think that's what, like, it's it's up to us. And I feel like as a champion too, like it's not about what you do in the ring. It's like what you said, what you do outside the ring and how you inspire others, man. And and that's like my whole team's like slogan was like stay positive stay motivated and that's always been our thing and i think if i can like continue to share that message and spread it then the world might not be a better place for everyone but it might be a better place for one person and that's enough man you know yeah i think like to hear that i really like to hear someone who's where you are in our sport say that because because in in the last couple years myself as well like i've started to really take an interest in kind of bringing um sort of younger kids up and, and you put it really well to say like I think I've kind of said on this show before is like nothing you really do with fighting is is that important in the grand scheme as important <laughs> as we make it but you can use fighting as a vehicle to do something that is really important and um, me like yourself like I started training when I was quite young and like I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have that kind of focus and like I think if more fighters took it because we actually touched on this just before we started recording, he's like, as a fighter, as someone who does this, young uh, young men, young boys in particular, they really listen to you. Like, not the way that they listen to teachers and, and cops and authority figures. Like, they actually listen. Like, they care what you have to say. And, like, yeah. that's important, you know, because then what you say, because some people who are, it's something that I've had to be conscious of is that, like, I can't say some stupid shit when I'm around a, a class of kids that are about to listen to me if I was to say something ignorant or, or something like, because they're going to listen to that and that will really become, oh, he beats people up and, and he said that. So that's a cool thing to say, you know, like it's that, yeah. that element of responsibility. Yeah, you got to lead by example, right? Yeah. So it's like, I think especially our sport already has a bad name. I mean, it's definitely getting better, but for a long time our sport was tarnished by the media. It was tarnished by people's perceptions. And I think it's important for us to defy that for a start and show people that you know what man like we are actually intelligent educated people yeah. i mean to be fair like 
I dropped out of high school when I was young and I, I fit the mold, man. I fit the mold of like, this guy's not going anywhere. This, he's not going to be anything with his life. And people told me that, man. Like my best friend's parents told me that. But the only people that told me that I would be something were my parents because they knew what I had in, inside me, you know. And I think not everybody is lucky to have that. So if you can be that that person to somebody, it's it's really important, man. And that doesn't just have to be with like disengaged youths or people that are like struggling with mental health. You know, like I do stuff with like the people that get bullied and like cyberbullying and, you know, and, and no one's immune from, from that, bro. You know, like, I mean, like I'm a professional fighter and like rank number five in the world. And I mean, it still happens to me online, bro. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like the, the highs and lows of life, you know, like I said, my life's perfect, man. It really is. But that doesn't mean that I don't have my struggles. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I have nothing to complain about, but I still have like, like dark times. And, but the thing that helps me get through that is like being surrounded by people that I love and people that love me and that have the, sh- the same passions and interests. And like, rather than like turn to going out drinking or whatever else, like for me, it's going to the gym, you know, some people go to church when they're feeling down. Like, I go to the gym, man. And, like, like you said, not everybody has that, but they, like it's there and they just need to, to find it sometimes. And man, I don't even tell people that they have to go to the gym and start training martial arts. That's like, it could be anything, man. Like pick up a guitar, you know, like, like write poetry, write songs, write rap, write, you know what I mean? Like go for a run or do an art class or do some yoga or, you know, who cares, man? Like just do something that, yeah, that, yeah. that gets you out of the day to day. Like the, the the mundane thing that gets you to a point where you're like, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it, that's just a voice in your head. But there's like 50 other voices that will override that if you allow them to. You know, so it's um, I think you're right, man. I think it's important for as not even just as athletes, but as coaches, as just as people. Like, it's important to lead by example and show mm-hmm. people that like. You know, it's not it's not cool to disrespect people. It's not cool to talk shit online. It's not cool to like like disrespect women. It's not cool to like be racist. It's not cool to talk shit on this. And you know, what I mean, it's it's cool to to be there for people. It's cool there. It's not fun, funny to make fun of someone that's having a bad a bad time. It's cool to lift your hand out and help them up. You know what I mean? Like that, that's my my thought process anyway, man. And I've kind of always been like even. When I was young, you know, like I always remember people used to make fun of Are You OK Day and things like that. And yeah. I used to think, like, why is that funny? You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Like, like you say, Are You OK? And someone says no and you find it funny. Like, that's just, that makes you a bad person. You're not funny. You're just a bad person. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's like, you know, and it's, it's great. Like, you know, I think on that note, we'll end it. Like, it's a very powerful, positive message. And it's like, it's awesome to see that, like, within our community of like, you know, professionals and like, <clears throat> and like, you know, just representing us, like they got someone, we got someone like you out on the forefront. It's like, you know, just kind of just breeding that positive message and kind of like saying you can turn it around to, to, uh, to these younger people. And they definitely need it and they need more people. And it's like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, man. You just got to take one look at what's going on in the media at the moment. And it's like, something's got to change, man. And I think, like I said, not without like going down another rabbit hole, but like you see what's happening in Victoria the last couple of weeks, a kid got stabbed to death and then like moments later there's another massive gang fight and it's like, but what, man? Like what, what is this shit? And it's got to come down to like these people have the wrong role models in their lives, man. Like yeah. that's a learned behavior from somewhere, man, yeah. whether it's 
I mean, don't get me wrong, I love hip-hop and shit like that, but it could be from the music they listen to, it could be the fact that they're seeing things on social media, or they don't understand the difference between social media and real life, so when they see people, like, like talking shit online or whatever, then they just carry it through. I don't know, man. I just, I think that things have got to change, and yeah, yeah. it's up to us to change it. It's not going to change itself, you know? No, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, like, what we need is people such as yourself that have that. It's easy to take, like, have a status, like, you know, a, a position on the one championship roster, have a platform, and just kind of serve yourself with it. I think, like, to see someone like yourself, um, you know, when we're sitting here talking, you're choosing to kind of just send that message of, like, positivity. Like, it makes a massive difference. So I think, like, you're doing really good things. And, and it not only makes a difference to the people that you're speaking to, but encourages other people in in this world, in this fighting world, to, to kind of be like, yeah, I, I should try to, to send a message of positivity and, and make a difference. So, so you're doing great things. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so, like, good. Elliot, the people's champ. It's been very awesome talking to you today, no, mate. Thank you. Yeah, very appreciative of your time as well. Uh, thanks for way. having me, man. I love love uh, spreading the message, and mm. like I said, I love how you guys are helping rebuild the sport with this podcast, man. It, it's great. I love it. Yeah, like seriously, man. Literally, could do another two hours. Yeah, for real. Like, <laughs> a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Um, look, like tell everyone where they can find you as well, like you know, Instagram or whatever. Platform. Yeah, man. I'm on all social media channels, uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube a little bit. Um, you can look me up through my gym website, teamcompton.co. I've got an online tutorials page that I'm running called Team Compton Tutorials through the website. Um, I'm new to TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, like you type my name into Google, you'll find me. Um, if you ever have any questions or you want to talk about anything, and like I reply to everyone, bro. Um, it might take me a couple of weeks, but I'll get there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man, just shoot me a message. I'm always down to talk. And if you want to tag me in your training videos and ask questions, I'm all about it, bro. So, oh, yeah, awesome. it's cool. Great. Excellent. So, um, same with us. If you're watching us on YouTube, you know, subscribe to our channel. You can also listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and all podcast platforms, as always. And, um, hey, if you like it, share it with your friends. <laughs> but uh, other than that, we'll catch you next time, okay? See ya. Hey. Oh, yes.